Good evening, retro gamers. It's late night here in Finland and the sun is shining. How are you doing, Andy? Hey, everyone. I'm doing fine, thanks. How are you? Well, I'm fine, except that I'm a little bit sleepless, pretty much because, as I said, the sun shines even in the night here in Finland, even if I don't live that far up north to have a proper midnight sun, but... The sky is pretty clear even in the middle of the night, unless it's very cloudy. So do you see the northern lights? I don't remember anymore. Yes, yes, that's definitely possible. I've seen them a few times through many years that I've been living here. It's not that easy to predict when they will appear, but there are websites that try to do that a little bit. They must be beautiful. Yes, of course. They mostly are. They in my case, I've always seen them in green, but I think it's possible also to capture different shades depending on the activity of the, of the sun. All right. So what have you been up to? Well, there's big news. Uh, so many listeners already know, some of the listeners don't know that we have been offered a channel in the Retro Asylum podcast. This is super exciting news and thanks ever so much to all the guys in Retro Asylum for you know boosting our podcast and helping us reach more people than we would have naturally done by ourselves at the start. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you also from my part, of course. And a special mention to Mads because he's been the one who's actually uh, been talking to me and, and, and doing all this for us. So after this great shout out, thanks again. What have I been doing? I have been looking at getting myself some EverDrives. So it, it's it's used to be able to load ROM files into a console, whatever that console is. It has its own EverDrive. You download the ROM file legally and you can put it on an SD card, put that into a cartridge that looks like a native cartridge for that console. And then you run that game. And I think we need this, especially because some of the newer games, in fact, a lot of them, come in these ROM file formats. They do come in cartridges as well, which is really, really nice. But we don't have all the cartridges. We can only afford to get the ROM files, so they sell the ROM files as well. And the way to play it is with these EverDrive cartridges. So the EverDrives come <laughs> mainly from an author called Crix, I think it's called, with a KR. I K double Z, I think, but they cost a load of money. So they range from 80 pounds minimum, very bare minimum, to 260 pounds for one system only. So it's a lot of money considering I have a lot of original hardware and I want to play the games on the original hardware. If you think about how much money comes out with EverDrives, with, you know, legit original EverDrives. That is 2K for all the EverDrives, maybe. Um, and that's a bit too much. So I resorted to go on AliExpress <laughs> and and actually try and get a Chinese one. I was trying to get one to play Dotty, which is the next game we're going to talk about. 
and uh, I ended up getting one for the Game Boy, one for the Master System, and one for yeah, this is the SNES. And they cost about twenty pounds each, including shipping. That probably as not as posh. I don't know if they have something called save states, which would help me probably finish some games because they're so hard, some of them. But um, at least it allows me to play the the files of the games that we want to talk about, which is the mo- the most important thing. Sounds like a great idea, actually. I think yeah. I probably have to look forward to doing the same thing eventually because that's a whole different experience, obviously, compared to playing the game on emulator. I know, I know, it's it's very different, and the buttons are mapped. Usually, we had this conversation before, where you you look at the controller mostly, don't you, before to see to, to replicate the experience, and you know, if you don't have a lot of space, people use emulators on on big old screens on the CRTs and or they use the mister I think the guys in Retro Asylum all have a mister as well which is a hardware emulation or hardware simulation I don't know exactly how to define it but it's based on electrical components that can be programmed to simulate the components of the original hardware so it should have zero lag I think there's lots of controllers for that as well Maybe, maybe that works better for you if you don't have much space yeah yes that's definitely my biggest gripe. <laughs> Space occupation is something that I really have to face when it comes to this hobby. I mean, I, I've got machines everywhere. So hardware-wise, uh, I, I have also been um, trying to repair um, a power supply for one of our listeners, Pete, and he's been very kind <laughs> and helped me trying to find the best possible Pentium machine in order to play the old games. So I've got especially the LucasArts ones, the adventure games, and I've bought myself this Pentium machine uh, on which to play it, which should be apparently a mid-level machine, which can do old games and new games. And then, joy of all, I've got myself a Roland MT-100. Um, so I wanted to get myself an MT-32. Have you ever heard of them? No. Okay, so back in the day, when you used to play, especially again, it comes to mind the the old adventure games, Monkey Island, The Dig, Grim Fandango. So you used to run the setup separately from the game. So you would install Monkey Island, you would say setup.exe, and then you would actually choose the type of sound card you wanted to use. There was probably Sound Blaster, AdLib, and the Holy Grail, the MT32, which is what's it called, a sound module, I think it's called. So it it stores the instruments on some hardware and it can play them. And these old games used to connect via the joystick port to the um, Roland MT32 and they would produce a much better audio than the speaker on the PC and it was probably better than the Sound Blaster as well at the time. So I've invested in one of those and I'm very curious to test it out now, uh, but I haven't done that yet. I would love to hear the the result of that too, because back in the day I was definitely just a sound blaster guy, and I thought I was set for life with that. <laughs> Didn't really know that there was this other option, so <laughs> yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing the results of that too. I never understood what it meant. There was a Roland MT32, and I was when I was a younger I, I did not understand it's like what what is this i don't know and there was another one that uh, Ad, yeah adlib was another one that i didn't understand and then there was other options and i was just well, don't know 
And if there was no sandblaster, it was just, you know, speaker and that's it. I'm quite eager to test it. Wow, look like you've been very busy recently. Unlike me, maybe. I've been mostly spending the last week just banging my head against the wall of a labyrinth of a very old game that I'm not sure you've heard about this, but you certainly know what a text adventure is. Yeah, of course, of course. We, I, I only played one with you years ago. Yeah, yes, I remember vividly. <laughs> I played my fair share of those back in the days. I had many for the Commodore 64, my first home computers. But this one I have never played before, and it's uh, completely in Italian language. It is, in fact, the very first ever designed text adventure in Italian, and it's called Aventura nel Castello, or Adventure in the Castle. So it's it's the first ever made in Italian, and it's hard. I've been trying to get out of that castle for a week, and... Still, I think, according to the scoring system, I'm only about 25% into the game. Well, you did better than me then, because I think I tried that and once, and I it's just the first, I, I just died immediately. I threw myself out of the plane without a parachute. Oh, okay, all right. So you did know that that game then. Okay, I, okay. I do, I do know it. I do know. I didn't know it was the first one though. It's very famous and, uh, well, unfortunately, it only exists in Italian language. So it's recommended recommended only to someone who can understand Italian, of course. But uh, one year ago, someone has made a um, web version of that from the original game that I think was released for Apple II in 1980 or just one or two years after that and uh, eventually ported to DOS. And one year ago, it was finally also made available to play in any browser uh, with the permission of the author, of course. That's awesome. It's, uh, well, it got me thinking that we should eventually try and investigate the genre, see if it still exists in what forms after so many years, because as much as I can say, I think this is one of the very earliest video game genres I have seen in my life. Uh, probably not many people nowadays would be still interested in a true text adventure where you have to type in the comments and some of those even require the sort of struggle or battle with the parser to make yourself understood. But... Um, I'm starting to have some good good opinion of those. And uh, this one was hard, and it was very, very interesting to try and as a challenge. It's very unusual compared to the games I've been playing in the last 30 years. Of course, yeah. It's very, very old. Did it cause you any frustrations? Because one of the things I know from listening to also to Retro Asylum is uh, that, you know, Dealing with a parser is not always a happy experience. Yes, exactly. And uh, it can be one of the weak points of one of such games. But I think this one is not, not bad at all with regards with the parser. It's, uh, 
it's a simple parser. It doesn't require very long sentences, which on one hand might be intriguing, but on the other hand, it really opens up for so many possible combinations that uh, if at some point you get stuck, you might want to try bluntly everything that comes to your mind. So if the parser allows you a structure, a syntax, such as verb and object, there are only so many combinations before eventually you figure it out. But if the parser is complicated and allows for much longer sentences, sentences then it, it doesn't really work, this brute force approach. But it's interesting that you died immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I think I, I'm, I think I, so far I managed to avoid death. I did figure out eventually where are the places you can die so far in that game, but only because I got to the point of being a bit stuck. So I decided to go back, try everything. And of course, I also tried to do something that I really thought it would get me killed. And it did. But it gave me it gave me the idea that I had been able to figure out what I should not have been doing. So, um, well, I think we'll have a chance later on to talk about these types of games. But maybe now there was something else I wanted to tell you, a little piece of news that uh, it really got my attention. Although I read about it uh, just after the previous episode so now it's already a bit old in internet time it's already a bit old news i think many people already know about this but for me it was uh, pretty good news and that is about one of the so-called lost arcade games or prototype more than a game that was recently leaked and made available on the internet archive and so people can finally play this game after 30 years. And what, sorry, game, what game? The game is Marble Madness 2. Do you remember Marble Madness? Yeah, of I do remember Marble Madness. Didn't you play with a trackball? Yes, that was definitely one of the biggest selling points of that game. I don't remember exactly the year when it came out, but I was still a, a child at that time. And I'd, I think I had never seen trackball at that point and uh, the idea so simple in one way but at the same time unprecedented for me that you could control a ball in the game or marble in the game by acting on a controller shaped like a sphere for me it was like a really wow moment yeah i remember that as well i loved it I, I put a lot of coins in those arcade machines to try and finish that game when I was a kid. I didn't manage, even though it's a pretty short game, and that's the main drawback of the original Marble Madness. Then I bought it for the Amiga and still couldn't manage to finish it. And uh, I think I struggled for years because in my rush to play the game that I thought I knew from the arcade, I didn't even bother reading the instructions. <laughs> I remember there was some point where it really seemed impossible. There was some slope that no matter how much I pushed the joystick, it wouldn't climb it. And then I, I just thought the game was bugged on the Amiga We're version. all like that when we're kids, don't we? No, 
when you're younger, you never read the instructions. It's when you get older, then you start you start maybe, reading the instructions. Maybe, maybe. But yeah, yeah. And then uh, I I dropped it for a few years, and then at some point when I retried it again, I figured out that you could just press the button, and it would give you a boost to pass that slope. So only when I was a bit older, I finished the Amiga version of that, and and. Uh, I think it, it was a really innovative game. Now, I don't really know much details about the sequel, but I think it's been talked about since the early 90s that uh, there was a second episode of the game in development and that it was released as a prototype and it started to appear in some fairs. But I think that uh, the arcades had already been fading out in popularity in the 90s. And uh, first, this prototype was called Marble Man. And it had some uh, additional things that people didn't seem to like, such as, for example, the marble transforming into a character. Uh, that doesn't sound Marble Madness at no, all to me. No, in fact, I think that it was not very well received. So... Eventually, another prototype was made, if I remember right, that's how it went. And that was simply called Marble Madness 2. But this game was had never leaked. The ROM of the game had never leaked. So it was talked about for ages because there were very few existing cabinets with these prototypes. Maybe, I don't know, not more than five, I suppose, in the whole world. And apparently... Nobody wanted to dump the ROM into a file and made it available. And it was really talked about for almost 30 years. And now it, it's been finally made available by someone. I don't know how legitimately, but anyway, it's on the Internet Archive, which is itself legitimate. I haven't tried it yet, but uh, I think that uh, MAME emulator is probably not yet supporting it, but I have read that there are already a few custom versions of it circulating that already supports the game. And very likely the next version of MAME will support it anyway. It's all about the controllers, isn't it? Uh, like, even if you had it on, on MAME, it wouldn't be the same without a trackball. Absolutely. Yes, I, I would definitely think so. And I thought many times that uh, it would be very a very good idea to get something like, for example, the X-Arcade. Uh, What's the X-Arcade? Um, I should know. Well, the X-Arcade is a, a very realistic arcade cabinet type of joystick. Well, they have many models. They have models for a single joystick with lots of buttons, of course, because it's, it's, oh, it's supposed to... Oh, I remember to now. I think it's designed for uh, either using with emulators or if you want to build your own cabinet. So there's, there used to be at least many models, single player, two players, and two players with a trackball. Yeah, yeah, I totally remember the X-Arcade now. They are pretty expensive. I think it was, last time I checked, $250, the version with the trackball. And, uh, of course, another option is to build your own. But, yeah, so that's, uh, uh, that's what I've done. Yeah, I, I know you are an expert of building custom. 
controllers <laughs> like that. Aha. Uh-huh. Do you remember when we were kids, I used to build joysticks out of everything. I don't know yeah. if you were there, but with my friends, yeah, we used to build joysticks because they weren't analog. Oh, I don't know, not analog joysticks, but it was a, they were from coming from the nine pin thing. Uh, so you had to just short any of the, any of the colors with the ground and it would go in a direction or in another, it would shoot. It was very simple. So I used to just ha- put like a, a spring on, for example, a gun, a plastic gun. I would open the gun and put the a micro switch for the, where the trigger was. And that would be the fire button because we only had one fire button on Amiga and Commodore and, and Spectrum. And then, four nuts on the in a cross and then in the middle a spring and i would just move the spring and touch the nuts around it and it would actually be a joystick that was so fun uh yeah now nowadays i've built myself a proper one because of what as you said the x arcade that now i remember was very expensive so i bought some parts from arcade in fact i got the newsletter today but i don't remember what it's what it's called arcade uk i think arcade world uk and i've got some sanwa joysticks in the beginning uh, and then now i think i've moved to simitsu and i've got a proper setup at home so if you ever visit me you know we can play yes definitely i still haven't tried your latest creation and i really would like to see it in action <laughs> i yeah I... mine is built with an ipack 2 inside mm. I don't know if it's from Ultimark, so it emulates either a keyboard. You can switch, you can set it to emulate a keyboard, or you can set it to emulate the Xbox uh, controllers with all the buttons, and and then it comes pre-configured with a set, and you can change it. But it's it's really good. Right. So then, in combination with the proper software, you basically can make it do anything if you map it to a keyboard. Yeah, yeah. So I use um, I use some emulators. Mm-hmm. One is called RGB Pi, and it's in a small box, but it works works very well. It's not a mister, but it has all that I need, uh, mainly the arcades. I love playing on that on that kind of um, platform, on that um, emulator. Well, I never I never managed myself to to really build a joystick. I repaired many of mine when they got broken back in the day, and I I remember when they were beyond repair. I had always salvaged the switches. So I still have yes. tiny candy metal box full of Competition Pro switches because I would usually break the plastic case and then save those oh. precious switches. They are still there, and I'm pretty sure they still work. But, well, never went as far as really create a whole custom controller. I think the main thing would be that uh, it has to be very sturdy, so you need to get quality components. And uh, I think that's exactly why those Arcade X or X Arcade sticks are that expensive because they can really withstand everything, probably massive uh, uh, banging on the buttons if you lose <laughs> or, uh, any- mm-hmm. or anything like those old uh, arcade sports games where you had to move the joystick left and right very quickly so that they really needed extremely sturdy joysticks for that. But uh, yeah, they, it, oh, sorry. No, but I, I know you're the expert, so you can share your hints sometimes about building those. 
Yeah, well, I'm not an expert, but what I can say is those components that make up the X-Arcade, they also sell them separately, so you can buy them separately as well. I think I did check on that, and the trackball was very expensive, even as a standalone component. But I would definitely like to have that in a custom joystick, especially because, um, well, Marble Madness is not the only games. There are other. There is Crystal Castle, for example. But uh, Marble Madness was also a two-player game. And really? Yes, definitely. And Marble Madness, Marble that. Madness Two, apparently is a three-player game. So, so what happens when the marbles go separate ways? If is it you lag, no. If you lag behind, you are transported quickly forward with a time penalty in the original right, okay. in the original game. But that that's uh, that's great. I mean, when you play in two, there is typically a competition because the one that gets first to the goal gets a bigger time bonus, but you can also choose to play aggressively and try to push the other ball off the track, which makes it lose even more time. So it, it it's really a lot more fun in two. And uh, I think that not even the XRK has a model with two trackballs. I don't think so. I think it's got one in the in the middle. Yes, so that would definitely require some custom work there, or of course multiple, multiple different trackball trackball controllers. I wanted to just to mention that you know I don't know. Of course, you remember because I'm I'm pretty sure you've got one because I I gave it to you. In Italy, there was this joystick that was the joystick. It was awesome. And it never broke, and it was just made with very solid micro switches. It was called the Albatross. Oh yeah, and it was the best joystick ever. I still have it. It never broke. It never broke. No one in the UK knows this. No one in America knows that we had the Albatross, the best joystick that was ever made. It's Italian. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I can vouch for it, but it might be very difficult to find one nowadays. But it's They're super expensive still as solid as it was the first day yeah 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 totally totally they're, they're undestructible undestructible um very good build quality so you, we always talk about controllers for the best experience so i was looking as i said before for some cartridges stuff and i did try and find something similar so some everdrive for my gamecube because I've been obsessed with that machine. I've got it there. I haven't been able to play anything at this stage because I've got a couple of discs, but I don't have a controller. So I was looking for a controller for the GameCube, and they're very expensive nowadays on eBay. Um, but I did find someone who actually sells them. They're called RetroFighters.com. And I was really drawn to them because they are wireless, and they have controllers for a variety of platforms. So my question is, there is a controller for the N64, and the N64 notoriously is bad, bad controller because it has a stick in an awkward position. It has a button underneath. I'd, at least from my understanding, it's a bad controller. So they sell a controller for the N64 that has, it resembles one of the modern ones. So it's got the analog sticks at the top in the positions that you're used to. So it's relocated them. And I think the buttons are more universal they resemble the one from the xbox in this this case is what we said in the one of the i think the pilot episode 
where we actually uh, talked about how the controller um, shapes the experience. But if the experience was bad with the default controller, would getting an, a new controller. This was these are also all wireless, so I think they're amazing because I mean I'd love a wireless controller to play on the on the old platforms here at home, but it might not be the same experience. I don't know if, if that matters as much to me. I, I still think I'm going to get one or two of them because they look really good. The N64 one must be revolutionary because it makes me, it will allow me to play the games much better than I would have done with the old controller. I think that you are doing the right thing overall. Yes, I do agree that if you want to have the nostalgic feeling, the real experience of playing the original hardware, you should go also with a screen of that time, so a CRT most likely. You should use the original controller most importantly. Probably you should also use the type of devices, cartridges, tapes, disks that were used back then for that kind of computer or console, whatever they were. But on the other hand, we are also focusing on moving on from just a nostalgic feeling. After all, we are now trying to explore what are new software for old hardware. So I think it it's absolutely the right thing to do to also move on. And sometimes I wonder if the, the game designers of that time, how much did they feel constrained by, for example, the standard controllers and they wished that there were more options. In home computers, there were plenty of options. The problem is more about consoles that have their own controllers. Nowadays, of course, you can find third-party controllers for most of the current consoles that might add something novel compared to the standard one, but the game designers will never design a game that the standard controller wouldn't work with. But for old old machines, yeah, I've been al- always wondering when a game plays poorly and that's because of the controllers, wouldn't it have been better essentially if you just had another option back then? It would have freed the game from this constraint and be a better game overall then why not? But I sometimes wonder if some of those original game designers might have specifically designed a game based on the bad controller that were available in the sense that that perhaps the game might become too easy, for example, with a much better controller. But I don't know. This is just an idea that sometimes comes to my mind. I don't know how how realistic it is. I think for me, it makes me want to buy one of these. So because I've tried the N64 controller on Mario and I find it quite clunky, to be honest. And I think, and I really am drawn to these new ones because A, they're wireless and B, they have the sticks in the right place, the buttons in the right place. And I think it it can really make a difference and let's say enhance my experience, to be honest. Uh, So I think I'm going to get one and I'm going to probably review it on the podcast. And they, I know they, they are doing a wireless tank mouse for the Amiga. <laughs> so that, that will be quite interesting. It's a Kickstarter. 
And I think it's already to reach the goal that it wanted to reach uh, in order to produce them. I am quite tempted to get one. Well, sh- yes, why not? Okay, a uh, couple of last things and then uh, we can close uh, this section up. We are playing some games now nowadays and we are looking into a catalogue of games that are meatier, let's put it that way. So we've played uh, Misplaced, we've played Cheesy Trials, uh, but we are finding that there are more and more and more games and some of them are really, really exceptional. One of them that I'm, I'm looking at is called Phantom Gear and it's from Mega Cat Studios again. And it's a platformer and for the Mega Drive. So there is a free demo. You can download it and you can put it on an EverDrive. <laughs> and you can play it with your Mega Drive. That's the best way to play it, which is what I've done. It looks fantastic. The animations are brilliant. I mean, you can, for me personally, I think you can really see how technology has evolved. And you can see how much detail there is in the backgrounds, in the... The art of the tiles, of the sprites, it's massively improved. There's a lots of frames of animations for the main character. It looks just really amazing. It's still a demo, so it can change, but I really encourage you guys all to download it and have a go at it and see how far it has come. And together with that, there's a lot of other games that are really, really good. I have tested some. Uh, I think we're going to probably play them with you guys, which is going to be absolutely amazing. Then I did find a game that looked really up my alley, which is called Backpack Hero. It seemed it was going to be for the SNES, but I think it's not. It's only for Steam. Anyway, I was a bit uh, let down and I did ask the developers if they're going to make an old compatible version, but I haven't had an answer yet, but it is really what I like. It's it's a form of RPG kind of battle thing. And it and even that looks it's just what kind of what I really like. And, you know, a bit of RPG but a lot of action. A bit of RPG and a lot of action. It's like a platformer. You have to confront enemies. You have you have a map. You can go around in the in the in the different areas and confront different enemies. And there's so many little items you can fit. I am a Diablo fan and this works really like I'd love it to work, like I want it to work. So you can change that as well, how you arrange the objects, and that will have a different outcome on how the battle pans out. I think it's really worth a watch. I know it's not planned to be released on the SNES or any old platform yet, but I think it's definitely worth a a look at. I think that's all for me on the news side. So I think... Should we talk about? Should we start? Yes. Yes. Should we start? Should we talk about this this episode's game? Yes, definitely. Let's talk about Dotty Dreadnought. Dotty Dreads Nought. So that is the game we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> it's from an author called Ephraim Goldlock. Um, his real name is Matthias, and we've got in touch with him to talk about his game. But first of all, I think it's probably best if you do the introduction, Diego, of what this game is. I've been talking up to now. So well, I will keep the introduction very short because this is very clearly a classic 2D platformer for the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. I think that's enough. I think that this game needs to be looked at 
to know what it's really about. It's a very classic, straightforward platformer that look, looks gorgeous in terms of graphics. In fact, it makes you wish that other platformers for the original SNES had been done with the same level of details for the graphics. And uh, with a small twist, with a couple of twists, of course, because I, I would say that platformers need one or two specific features to stand out among the large number of, of them existing. It's nice to, to quote, anyway, Goldlock himself when he says that he really wanted to make a platformer at that time because there is never too many platformers. And I kind of share that feeling because it is probably the type of games that I have myself played most, even though I would say that my very favorite type of games is probably the management strategic type of game. But in terms of how many games of a certain genre I played, I think platformers outnumbers all, all other genres. But what to say more about this game? Uh, I think you should try it <laughs> first and foremost. It's a, it's a single-player game where you control a character that is a little witch. And uh, this is actually where the whole idea started from, according to Goldlock himself, that he simply had in mind the idea of pixelating uh, and animating the image of a little witch. And that's how the seed of the game was thrown, so to speak. And this game actually was made for a competition, right? Was it the Game Jam 2021? Yeah, it was the Dev Jam, I think, 2021, if I recall correctly. Yeah. And it also did pretty well. It came second, apparently. I'll spare a couple more details about the game. So I said that it's... Um, you already said that it's made by... Goldlock, and he basically single-handed, single-handedly designed the whole game, with the exception of the music, which is made by Ninomiya Yuji. And uh, the twists of these games are that the character has some special movement called drill. You have to charge it. It's very easy to charge. You only need one hit of the enemies and then you can you can uh, decide to make a drill which is essentially a sort of power up that propels you against the enemies in a certain direction and hit every enemies that comes across but this is uh, can i add a, a, some detail here sorry sure her main way of firing is slashing with a broom and then you have the drill. That's that's all I wanted to add. Yes, that sounds better. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, so let's say that this is the basic combination of uh, normal strikes and some power-up that you can use. You can use it pretty often, but it's kind of the key to the playability of the game because there are many things that require to activate the drill, sometimes even when there are no enemies but because this also allows the character to reach to other places that you can't just by jumping. And the second twist is this so-called perspective 
ability. So here we share another insight from Goldlock that basically that competition was given a theme that was simply perspective, whatever that could mean for the developer. And uh, originally the author didn't feel like there was much to do with this team in combination with the game that he had in mind with a, with a platform until it came to his mind that this could mean to switch the perspective between two different characters. So that's something that you also need to enable in the game. It requires, if I remember right, four enemy kills before you can activate the perspective. And this can only be done at specific points in, in certain levels. And it allows to switch from the main witch character to her sidekick, which is an owl that can fly and perhaps reach places that she wouldn't otherwise be able to. So the whole game plays around with some basic, usual jumping and striking. And then it requires you to think when to use these two special moves. Um, I never knew that you have to, I never noticed that you have to have a full gauge. So the, the game has a, a gauge uh, up the top. It has, I think, five dots. And every time you kill an enemy, it fills one of the gauges. And I thought those were also how many drills you could perform. I didn't understand. I, I didn't even notice that it was, you had to fill the gauge to do the perspective. Yeah, that's how I think it works. And uh, the, the, the mechanic of drills is not immediately obvious, but I think if the drill is successful in the sense that you actually hit some enemy, then you can keep doing it. Because in a sense, to activate the next drill, it requires just one hit. So if you use the drill, you consume your usage. But if you also hit something with that drill, then you can immediately keep drilling. And this is required in some later levels. You need to keep drilling to essentially fly or hover in a certain direction without falling down, for example. And you have to do that, killing all the enemies. So you kind of jump from an enemy to another. You drill from an enemy to another and you keep yes. going on. It's pretty ingenious in some key places of, of certain levels. You can say also that you can drill in any direction. So you can drill up, down, sideways, but also diagonally. And also you can drill midair. So if you if you jump in and you decide you want to drill from there, you can do that. Yeah, that, that's definitely the interesting mechanic of this character. And uh, it's very nice to, to see that the author didn't just throw in this as just another possible power-up to be used whenever you want to, but you have to use it in specific places to proceed across the level. So that, that's really nice, in my opinion. I also noticed that you can sweep the broom in eight different directions. That's right, yes. In that case, I'm not so sure what is the point, because it also seems to work automatically. So if you position yourself, for example, on a certain platform and you have an enemy on top of you, 
on another platform, it automatically shoots upwards, like it detects that there's an enemy on top of your head. So I don't understand then why you can also choose the direction. Well, perhaps there might be some case when you have multiple enemies and you want to make sure to strike the one you need and not the others. But Well, if you think about the original controller, it was a D-pad controller. So it probably was more difficult to pull off a diagonal. Yeah. That... And maybe he implemented this mechanic in, in order to simplify that and not, not make people curse when they were you know, trying to get a diagonal with a, with a D-pad of the SNES. Mm. Yeah, that might be it. How did you feel anyway that about the playability of this game in general? I did have my gripes. So some levels you get to, you can do the drilling um, and you need to hover over certain large areas, for example, of lava later on. And sometimes you start the drill, but the enemies don't sink. So they're not in the right position for you to drill, but you don't know because you can't see it. So you, you start off the drill and if, you, if the enemy is in the right position, then you can go on. But if he's not, you just drop down and you drop in the, in the lava and you die. That was a bit frustrating for me. If we're mentioning playability, it's, um, it's not always easy to spot the areas where there's a perspective, but you know, you get used to it and then you find a, a no way out and then, you know, you, you know, you have to actually call your owl, which has glasses on. It has sunglasses, this owl. It's quite fun. I think Goldlock said that um, his daughter was reading a book about owls and so they decided to include an owl. But why he's got sunglasses, I have no idea. Sunglasses. I thought that he yes. just had very big eyes with dilated pupils. <laughs> <laughs> didn't notice they were sunglasses. I don't know. But yeah, I think those aspects created some difficulty in certain points. And I had to try over and over again until I understood that there was this, for example, the syncing up with the, with the monsters so you could get to the other side of the platform. But eventually I managed to do it. But there was another thing that I wouldn't say ruined the game because that's a bit too too strong, but it made it really clear that you have to do something in a certain time. Not always, but in certain levels, you have exploding boxes. And towards the end of the game, there is a point where you activate these exploding boxes with the owl. So you have to change your perspective, switch to the owl, go up and trigger the boxes to explode. Now, in the early levels, this is quite easy. So uh, there is no implication. There's no time limit. It just explodes and then you can go through. But towards the end of the levels, you have to be really fast because you need those boxes that are exploding to get to the next level, to the next platform, I should say. And if they've exploded already, you can't get there. <laughs> and you're, you're stuck and you have to redo the level. You have to die and redo it again. And that I found wasn't very fair. Like I thought, oh, that's a bit, I didn't know it was time related. Up to now it wasn't, now it is. And I was a bit disappointed in that, to be honest. But I got over that as well. And I managed to time myself. It was an extra challenge in the end. I didn't, I didn't mind it. Yeah, tell me about it. I agree. I think that was also for me the number one point of frustration. The number two point of frustration was the final boss. I don't know if you managed to beat that, but I did eventually manage to complete the whole game. But uh, yeah, first of all, I might say that the whole game has a very steep 
difficulty curve. It starts that it is so easy that it's practically harmless. The first uh, half level, I don't think you can even die in the first half of the first level. Then it gets a bit more challenging, a bit more challenging, and in the course of what are perhaps seven levels or so, I must say I didn't count them properly, it really gets difficult. And the level that you mentioned is it really drove me mad at some point. <laughs> but I also I have an excuse that <laughs> well we haven't talked about the sound of the game. I want to say I have to say it. It's a bit early but maybe but I have to say it. I loved the music the first time I heard it. There's about two tunes in the whole song. I love them. But the second one in a level that I started to fail, it kind of started to, to drive me insane a little bit, so I turned it off. And oh, rage quit. I turned off the sound at some point, and that was a mistake. Because when I got to that point, I kept trying and trying, and I didn't really understand what was I supposed to do. At some point, the level seemed empty of platforms. Where are the platforms? How do I go forward yeah, at this point? I reached that point at the same time, yeah. Yeah, and that was because there's a place, one of these that you mentioned in the game, that's the worst one, where you activate this effect that blows up brick by brick a certain path forward into the level. And you have to go quickly, reach the part of the platforms that still exist that haven't been blown up yet before they are. So had I left the sound on, I probably should have noticed the sound of bricks still blowing up in the black background. <laughs> you didn't even hear the sound. I, I didn't. I didn't. And I just kind of thought, mm, maybe I should be faster so that maybe when I get here, there is still some platform. But it was hard. You really had to go and almost not waste a second into following this uh, bricks explosion series. And then when I realized it, I eventually turned the sound back on. I realized it was still popping in the background. And then I thought, all oh, right. So that's <laughs> how far it goes with the bricks. So I must really be faster than this so that I can reach it. And then when I got it, I got it finally. But I, I wasted a lot of time trying this. And uh, that level, anyway, is pretty brutal. And I think it's uh, probably the last level before the boss. So you have to be prepared that the game isn't that long in terms of number of levels. And they get difficult quite quickly. Every new level is significantly more difficult than the previous. At the beginning, it almost seemed like, wow, this is going to be a kid's game. It's so easy, so relaxing. <laughs> but when you get to the end, it's a completely different level of challenge. And even the final boss took me a while to figure out a good strategy or tactic to get it done. And uh, eventually I did. And then when I tried that one, I think I can replicate it easily. So I don't know if I can call it a little trick. It's a legitimate tactic anyway, but uh, 
it took me a while. I won't give I any spoilers. T- no, 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 I'm not spoilers. giving any spoilers. But I'm just going to say that I had to try many tactics because uh, it was really difficult. I really had to change my way of attacking the final boss and evading the final boss until I got it. And when I got it, all right, then I tried it a few times and I knew, okay, I can do it this way. All right, so... I- I would like to add some other bits and pieces that we didn't really mention before. We kind of rushed through it a little bit. When you switch to the owl, uh, the way you drive the owl, (laughs) as to speak, uh, the way you control the owl is a bit like Flappy Birds. So it's not really just moving him around with a joystick. You have to keep tapping and he flies. Every time you, you tap, he flies a little bit higher. So it kind of goes with your tapping. And then... There was a point as well where I didn't have any drilling drilling charge and there was a wall between me and one of the mobs. I call them mobs. So we can talk about the mobs as well. The enemies resemble Lego heads and in fact that they are inspired from Mega Man Legends, I think, which resemble Lego. And they they have like a a status color so i think they're blue they're, they're not harm they're not harmful they're not aggressive but if they turn red then they get aggressive and they come after you i didn't have any drill charge and i needed it and i didn't know how to get it because the enemy was behind a little wall but it's me- worth mentioning that you can actually go towards the wall and and lean on it and shoot and the broom would reach to the other side of the wall Another part that I found a bit strange in the beginning was some of the enemy respawn exactly where they are as soon as you've killed them. So especially when you begin, you have to get rid of apparently of some some weeds outside your house, um, and you do that with your with your broom, and then some stumps appear, and then you get rid of those, and you never have to do that again. You never have. I think you've got couple of more weeds and then you never see any stumps or anything you know, or any more weeds when it's, once you go on the enemies are varied they're always the lego heads there are some lego heads that are ground on the ground and there are some lego heads that later on that fly and shoot and then there are some lego heads which actually fly and come and they don't shoot but they will come and um, attack you within range i learned also that the ones that shoot, they shoot you some big ball, but I didn't, I, in the beginning I used to die a lot. And then I, I realized with the broom, you can deflect them and you can send the, the bullets flying in the opposite direction. So this is, um, there's just a, another couple of details that I think we're, we're missing from before. There is no minimap, like you don't know, again, like Mario, uh, there are some other games that I've seen, uh, developed that have this as well which is i think really good it's like a progression thing so you got you go you have to go from point a to point b and you know where you're going and you know how much time you need to get there or how many steps there are and dotty doesn't have this again it's um you 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 go through the levels and you don't know how many levels there are you just progress until you arrive somewhere and another thing that was a bit frustrating for me there was no checkpoint and it's so easy to die later on they're not very long the levels, but you don't really want to do it from the beginning all the time. So you would like to really just go from just before you died, really, then try that again and try that again and try that again, because it's very, very easy to die later on in the game. 
So I think that that could have been that could have been a great addition to have a, a, a denser checkpoint rather than starting have have one or two checkpoints in between, just to alleviate the frustration of dying continuously. We're modern now; we we don't want to die all the time. And I think it's worth mentioning that the game anyway doesn't have a limited number of lives, so you keep trying until you are tired of playing, and I think that pretty much leads to playing this game in in that mode where you start from the beginning each time it's not that long and the game doesn't actually support saves if i remember right so it leads itself to playing it like from the beginning to the end in one single run yeah there are another couple of things you start off with your broom and you finish with your broom and your drill and that's all you've got from start to finish. Uh, I think that's okay as a choice. I, I would, uh, you know, I like to get all different weapons, stock them and, you know, combine and do all sorts of things. But I mean, back in the days, you didn't have this. It was difficult and they didn't do this either. So I mean, that's fine. The main thing that we forgot to say, I think, is why is Dottie doing all this? Well, what is she trying to accomplish? There is a purpose. The purpose is she wants to find a flower to decorate her house. But she's willing to die for it. To die. Yeah. <laughs> I think that uh, that's the background story of Dottie. It's very simple, but there's a reason. And uh, I don't know, maybe it's time that we wrap up with our opinion personal opinion on this game so I can say from my part that when I first played this game all the way through the end I was kind of prepared to give it like sort of mixed reviews not because it's bad uh, yeah well perhaps except that big frustration that I had with the last level but it wasn't bad anywhere but it did seem that there were so many partially developed things. The story was one of that. It was kind of simple and maybe too simple. But I wouldn't mind that too much. But for instance, this perspective feature of the game, the switching to the owl, it always seemed to me that it could have been used for so many more things just then flying to a specific spot that's actually usually very easy to do so I thought why wasting such a good opportunity and also the game overall feel, felt pretty short and probably that's also why the difficulty curve is so steep you don't have that many level to go from that almost trivial difficulty at the beginning to the pretty challenging at the end but then we got in touch with Goldlock and I I found out more about the history of this game and that it all became clear to me why it fell underdeveloped because unfortunately it is underdeveloped and Goldilock has in my opinion done an amazing job sorry sorry I, I don't think it's Goldilocks Goldilocks is a is Gold a tale Goldlock Gold Lock, sorry I think Goldlock has done an amazing job and I have read his resume, so to speak. He's a very expert super NES programmer. 
and uh, but he had to do this game in just three months and he cared so much about getting the core right and fine-tuning it that it spends two of these months just doing that and he originally had a much much bigger plan more ambitious plans for these games it was supposed to have a world map with eight different worlds each world many levels and each world having its own features mechanics enemy types gimmicks and he wanted to distribute the difficulty curve across all these levels and worlds all together so eventually he only had a month or so left for the actual level contents and he had to settle with something small but i'm not even sure that the version we have played is the same as the competition because somewhere he has mentioned that he only made three levels for the competition and this is at least twice as many so i really hope that he hasn't completely finished the development of this game because it's nice just like it is now but it could be massive if he decides to pick it up and continue with his ideas he he mentions that he did have much better plans for the owl so for example have it participate more in battles and you don't you actually can't use the owl in battle because as soon as you change perspective all the monsters freeze and the owl itself cannot attack them but Godlock had something else in mind he hasn't revealed what exactly he had in mind but he had many more about this well i think that completely changed my perspective on this game and now it's a big thumb up from me i think this has been an amazing job in such a short time and i hope that Goldlock hears this somehow and decides maybe to pick it up and expand it to what were his original plans i really hope so too i think that it's been an amazing job done in such a short time. Don't forget, he's done everything except the music. He's done the graphics, the engine, the level design. He's done countless hours of testing as well. And it's just an amazing effort from one person, one person. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the homebrew world, there are way more games for platforms like the Genesis, uh, the Amiga, the Commodore, some of the reasons we know. But for the SNES specifically, I I seem to understand that it's a much more difficult uh, platform to code for. So there there aren't as many games as there are for other other platforms at the same time. There are a couple of tools, Selicray and Rex, that they use, but the compiler is not very good. I've read that, so I'm, I'm kind of reporting here. And the Sega, for example, the Sega Mega Drive is much better, much easier to develop. And so that's why we see a lot more games for the Mega Drive rather than the SNES. This just to reinforce the, the concept that he's done an amazing job. I think he's done, he's coded it all in assembler or something, I think he wrote. I don't understand properly what that is, but um, I know it's a low level machine code, I think. Um, and it's difficult and, you know, props, props to him for doing such an amazing job in such a short time. And the least that we can do is just play it and get the word around and hope he, 
he expands. I think he's done several more games, hasn't he? Yes, yes. And just because you mentioned Assembler, I wouldn't say it's difficult. I would say it's a nightmare. I have my own experience. <laughs> and uh, now that you mention, I, I just realized that's probably the only video game I have ever completed was written in Assembler. Back in, back in the 90s, yes. But this is a game nobody will ever play, fortunately. And it was um, it was homework assignment for one of my engineering university courses, and uh, made fifty percent by me, fifty percent by a friend, and it took about mm, one month or maybe a little more of hard work to get out a game that was essentially a clone of Nibbler, if you remember the <laughs> classic arcade game with yeah, a snake yeah. eating fruits and getting longer and having to navigate the maze but in assembler it was a hell of a work just to do that so i can't imagine how he has managed to put all this stuff still in a couple of months for the engine or the core of the game uh, before starting to add content all in assembler well of course he has used some graphic tools for for the sprites yes but still but about other games uh, yes he is the author of at least a good bunch of super nes games and uh, i haven't played them but i checked them out what they are and the thing that really st strike me was that not a single one of these game was trivial. So I would really like to mention these because uh, I, I think I want to see them, but also I probably recommend others to check them out. That, for example, he made a game called N-Warp Taizakuzen. And uh, the reason he made this game is basically to push the Super NES into an eight players game while all the official games are only up to five players. So that's already quite an uh, amazing challenge in my opinion. Then he made a game called Super Road Blaster. I don't know how many people have heard about Road Blaster before. It's kind of an obscure... I haven't either. It's an obscure, in my opinion, laser disc game and uh, uh, he decided to make this game a port of the original Lazardis game for the SNES after uh, Bu created some memory expansion I think and uh, something that enables CD quality audio for the SNES or something like that so after this other developer called Bu created these then immediately Goldlock thought about porting a Laserdisc game to the Super NES. That's quite a feat also. And uh, it looks like all his games start from uh, wanting a serious challenge. Another game of his is Jet Pilot Rising. Well, it's essentially a single button game, but he decided to self-impose a 24 hours limit and see what kind of game he could do in just that amount of time. 
which is obviously very little. And he succeeded in making a games like, game like that. And then he made Chiptune Rocker, a very weird mix of an RPG with a dance music game that huh. he mentioned he even rebuilt his own controllers as a dance mat, a guitar and a drum kit for that game. And maybe the, the one that really impressed me most is a game called Superboss Gaiden. And I think this actually made the news a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago, because it it's possibly the only game ever made for the never-released Nintendo PlayStation prototype. If you remember back in the 90s, before Sony made the PlayStation, there was a brief stint of Nintendo and Sony working together to design a prototype for a next-level console. And it was tentatively called Nintendo PlayStation, and it was never really commercialized. And eventually then this joint project ended the two companies split up again and sony made the real first playstation out of what i learned from this project but the nintendo playstation never really existed i think that there are a few prototypes that sell for an incredible amount of money among collectors and goldlock i think not sure if he's the only one who ever made a game for that but at least he was the first and uh, I think he mentioned that he he obviously didn't have the prototype prototype itself because there were really just a very small bunch of those. So he had to design this remotely on a on an emulator that instead existed for this unavailable otherwise console. But I think that's these all tell me that uh, it's a very special kind of game designer that really looks yeah they're all geniuses i think they're they're all geniuses they know how to do all these things it's it's so so hard to get all the skills to do one game i think it's really incredible yeah i'm still stuck with that nibbler cloning assembler and that's the only game i ever managed to to complete so all, all these kind of work sound really really amazing from my point of view that someone would set himself such challenges of all these different kinds and also quite creative imagine having a, a mix of rpg and dance music game <laughs> that must be amazing i just don't know it's just like zelda and then have, have a dance and then go in another it's just uh, i don't know i just think it's really interesting and yes i, I would like to see that too unusual. definitely yeah okay um have we said everything you want to say about uh, about dotty yes i think that we can wrap the episode up. We mentioned in the Discord channel that we are going to change our formula a bit. So it would be nice to have an input from you listeners as well and to let us know what you think. And we will we'll put the audio clips, if you send us audio clips or if you send us an email, we'll try and read it in the episode uh, about the next game that we're going to play. So we're going to announce now what we're going to play next. So you have time to prepare and play it with, along with us. And that would be amazing. And if you send us your opinions, that would be even more amazing. We, yes, I'll leave, I'll leave Diego because I think this is his, um, 
his territory more than mine, but he can he can let you know what. Uh, do you want to say what we're going to play next? Of course. So the game we've chosen for the next episode is Sam Mallard, The Case of the Missing Swan. And note that this game exists in two significantly different forms. One for the Sinclair ZX Spectrum and the other for the Nintendo Game Boy. The story is kind of the same, but the gameplay is pretty different on the two. I am really looking forward to play that as well. And this game is available on the each.io platform. If you just want a downloadable version, that's pay what you want. And then if you like it, it's, it's, it is also available at least on the Spectrum in tape format for a small fee. So hope that you would like to play this game and enjoy it like we already have. Yes, one last thing that we forgot to say, where can you find Goldlock if you want to get in touch with him? And you can reach him on Goldlock, that's G-O-L-D-L-O-C-K-E dot itch dot I-O or on Twitter at uh, twitter.com slash G-O-L-D-L-O-C-K-E 7. Yeah, just wanted to put this in before before we close the episode. So I hope you'll play together with us. Sam Mallard, The Case of the Missing Swan. Play it on whatever platform you prefer. You'll be able to find it. I think it's a free download. And uh, let us know your opinions. If you have any other questions of any nature, just send them over to game at newgameoldflame.com. Don't forget the Discord server. You can reach it by going on our website, uh, www.newgameoldflame.com. There's a link there. Click it and you'll be part of the Discord. Or nowadays, if you are a Retro Asylum listener, you can find our channel inside Retro Asylum Discord. So I hope to see you there. And I think that's it for today. Hope you enjoyed the episode and we'll see you next time. See you. Bye.